Hey guys, Pastor Kent here for our first episode of our new ministry, and what a week it has been. This is insanity, it seems like. So much going on, so many pieces of information to try to process. I'm going to try to give you a general overview of both the theological point of view, the history of the Bible, and also an understanding of the end times in relationship to the political situation that's going on today. It's going to be complex. Hopefully, it'll simplify it in some way. And I be patient with me because remember, everything I'm going to be talking about today is very, very nuanced. Even the positions on the end times and how to interpret passages and how to view them. There are multiple different interpretations and nuance understandings of these things that are held by really wonderful Christian men and women who are scholars, and they haven't gotten to a complete resolution that I would call a complete consensus. They fall into multiple camps. We'll talk about that during today's episode. So I wanted to deal with two issues today if you've got a few moments to join me. And the first is I want to talk about where are we on the biblical prophecy point? In other words, is Jesus coming back soon here? And then the second one is how did we get here in the Middle East into the conflict that we find ourselves in? And so I'll deal with both of those today. I want to begin by addressing this question, where are we with respect to God's end times calendar? And the first thing I want to say about that is, and I say this every time I'm asked, we are a day closer to the return of Christ than we were yesterday. We can say that for sure. How many days are still left on the calendar, we don't know. But we can look at different portions of Scripture to get some kind of idea of where we fit in terms of God's big picture timeline. And I want to do that by beginning with the the, uh, explanation of this fact that there are many wonderful, godly, smart Christian men and women and scholars who differ on this issue quite extremely. And so let me give you a basic picture of the what I would call the evangelical, conservative, biblical worldview of the end times and the theories that go with that. The first theory has to do with the what is known as the millennium, and that's found in Revelation chapter 20. And Revelation chapter 20 says there's going to be a 30-year, uh, excuse me, 1,000-year reign of the Christ on earth. And the, the view of that determines how you understand the end times prophecies together. And so there's a number of views. The first view, which is the oldest view, or one of the oldest views, or certainly the most popular, let's say it that way, because there's even debating over which one's the oldest, and I don't want to get into all of that. And the people who hold that are Roman Catholics in general, uh, Presbyterians, generally speaking. Almost all Reformed theologians hold to it, which is known as the amillennial view. In other words, that thousand-year reign of Christ spoken of in the book of Revelation is to be taken as a figurative number. In other words, it's not exactly a thousand years. It's a figure for a long period of time, a time of a beautiful time. And they would call this a fulfilled or actualized millennium. And they would say that we're in it now, that it started after the resurrection of Christ. And they would basically make that equivalent to the church age. And the way they would look at that is they would say that the second coming of Christ and what we know as the rapture is the same event. And it ends the present time period we're in or the time of the church. They call it a realized millennium. And their idea is basically based on the passage in Luke where Jesus said the kingdom of God is within you. 
And so they say, there it is. It's meant to be spiritual. It's meant to be something that happens in, in, internally in us. And then Christ will come back. They believe that. But he'll come back uh, to establish his throne. I have to use the terminology correctly because there's two view, another view. So that's the amillennial view or the realized millennium or that we're living in it now. And when Jesus come back, that terminates it. And then we go into the eternal state after a general judgment. Another view is known as the post-millennial view, and that that is that we're living in the spiritual kingdom, and as we disciple the nations, and we move forward in doing that obediently to Christ, all the nations will eventually be reached with the gospel. Everyone who's going to be a Christian becomes a Christian, and Christ comes back and begins his reign upon the earth and has a, a general judgment and then into the eternal state. And that's known as the post-millennial view. Then there you have another view, which is known as the premillennial view. And as soon as you say that, you go, oh, my goodness, there are multiple views on the premillennial view. And premillennial means that Jesus comes back before that thousand years. The other ones, he all came back, wasn't before the thousand years. You're either in the thousand years or you're uh, after it. OK, this view says, well, there are two comings of Christ. There's two comings of Christ. One is called a rapture and the second is called the second coming. And so they appeal to the book of First Thessalonians that talks about a trumpet in the sky and we who, you know, will be caught up in the air with him and forever be with the Lord. And that's one view. And the premillennial, pre-tribulational view is that this occurs seven years before the second coming of Christ. So the first one is not an actual coming to the earth but appearing in the sky and calling all believers up to meet him and all dead believers will have their bodies resurrected and transformed into their eternal state kind of body. And then they will go up into heaven. And generally speaking, again, everyone has nuanced theories on this, but that's where the uh, wedding feast of the lamb takes place for seven years. Well, tremendous chaos occurs on the earth known as the great tribulation or the time of Israel, Jacob's trouble. That's a seven year period. Then Jesus comes back at the end of that to basically deal out judgment to all the nations uh, for persecuting the followers of the Messiah, which is the Jewish nation. Because remember, if they're Jews and they're not converted into Christian Jews, then they don't go up in the rapture. They're still down here. God has a plan for Israel and he's going to work it out. And this seven year plan is going to when it's going to be worked out. Then the second view is called the mid-trib rapture. So in other words, everything starts moving into the tribulation period. That started by a contract that's signed with uh, unknowingly with Israel and the Antichrist. It's going to be a political figure. And that political figure is a, establishes a peace treaty and the ability of Israel to worship on the Temple Mount, to rebuild the temple and do all of that. And in the midpoint of that time period, he breaks the contract, turns against Israel, and he attacks them. And this leads to a horrible war known as uh, the Battle of Armageddon, where Jesus comes back and he kind of disseminates all the problems and deals with it. And I'll get you a little more detail on all of this in a minute, but I'm trying to give you a general overarching deal. The third view is that when they believe in a thousand year reign of Christ, a literal thousand year reign of Christ, and they believe that the rapture and the second coming are the same event, 
that is just known as classical, uh, gosh, <laughs> premillennialism. And it effectively becomes almost postmillennialism, except for the difference is the postmillennial believes the world's going to get better and better until Jesus comes back because we fulfilled all the commands that he asked us to fulfill in disseminating the gospel, whereas the premillennial believes that you're going to have wars and rumors and wars and Jesus comes back. But that's really not much difference between classical premillennial and postmillennialism. And if you guys hold very true to one of those, and I offended you, I understand I have because I've nuanced it and I'm not getting into all the crazy details because there's whole books written on this stuff. I'm just trying to give a general overview. So the question is, when will Jesus comes back? Every one of those theories on the end times believes that Jesus is coming back. That's unequivocal. Every genuine Christian believes that. Bible-believing Christian believes that. So what are the signs of his second coming? There are no signs to his rapture. Even the premillennial guys believe that. So what are they? So I want to take you to a few passages that give you a description of this. The first one is Zechariah chapter 12, which we have the promise given to the nation of Israel that there is a future for them, and this is how it's going to unfold. And he's going to save the nation. And this is what it says in Zechariah chapter 12 and verse 1. The burden of the word of the Lord, and all caps Lord means Yahweh. So he's talking about the, uh, the God we worship, Yahweh. The burden of the word of the Lord concerning Israel. In other words, here's the prophecy concerning Israel, the people of Israel. Thus declares the Lord, that's Yahweh, who stretches out the heavens lays the foundation of the earth, and forms the spirit of man within him. In other words, I'm the creator God, the most high God. This is Yahweh, the only true God. Behold, verse 2, I'm going to make Jerusalem a cup that causes reeling to all the peoples around. And when the siege is against Jerusalem, it will also be against Judah. So there's going to come a time that there's going to be people mad at Israel, and they're going to come against both north and south Israel, in other words, the whole nation. Verse 3, it will come about in that day, and whenever you see that phrase in the Old Testament prophets, it almost always refers to the end times. In that day, that I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. All who lift it will be severely injured, and all the nations of the earth will be gathered against it. In other words, the whole nation of Israel is going to be a problem for people. The rest of the nations of the world are going to see it as a problem, like a big stone that has to be moved, a big weight that's in the way. They just they, let, they think of Israel and they think, man, this is we, we, we got to do something with these guys. They're a pain in the neck. Okay. Then he says this in verse 4, In that day, declares the Lord, I will strike every horse with bewilderment and its rider with madness, but I will watch over the house of Judah while I strike every horse of the peoples with blindness. In other words, they're going to come against them in some sort of war, and those who are the warriors coming against Israel, God is going to neutralize, blind them, so that they can't be effective. But he will protect Judah, his people. Verse 5, then the clans of Judah will say in their hearts, a strong support for us are the inhabitants of Jerusalem through the Lord of hosts, their God. In other words, we have some really strong, you know, committed believers in Jerusalem. Their faith and trust is in the Lord. That includes all of us. And that's where our confidence is. The Lord is going to take care of us here. 
verse 6, in that day, I will make the clans of Judah like a fire pot amongst the pieces of wood and a flaming torch among the sheaves so that they will consume on the right hand and on the left all the surrounding peoples while the inhabitants of Jerusalem again dwell on their own sites in Jerusalem. In other words, when these guys come against them, they're going to defeat them because they're going to be like a blowtorch is going to wipe out those armies and they're going to be able to really enjoy living in the city again. Verse 7, the Lord will also save the tents of Judah first, that's the outskirts of Jerusalem, so that the glory of the house of David and the glory of the inhabitants of Jerusalem will, be, will not be magnified above Judah. In other words, we're going to be seen as all one nation. In that day, the Lord will defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem and the one who is feeble among them in that day will be like David and the house of David will be like God, like the angel of the Lord before them. Isn't that interesting? Who is the angel of the Lord? The angel of the Lord is Jesus Christ. So it'll be as though Jesus is right there among them. And in that day, I will set about to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. And then verse 10, I will pour out on the house of David and on the inheritance of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace and of supplication so that they will look on me whom they have pierced and will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. And they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping of the firstborn. What he's saying is this is when Jesus comes back to protect them. That's what it's all about. And that's why it says it's like the day the angel of the Lord. It is the Messiah will come and save them. So when you look at that and you see that everything that's going on in that, in that particular prophecy, that's how this thing ends. But what is the condition of this going on on earth? Well, obviously something's happened that's got the whole world mad at Israel and they're coming to try to wipe them out and God's going to protect them. Okay, now let's go to another passage, Ezekiel chapter 38 which is another famous passage and lots of different opinions on it. <laughs> and I'll, I'll try to give the general overview is my whole goal here. Ezekiel chapter 38, here we go. It says this in verse one. And the word of the Lord came to me saying, son of man, set your face towards Gog, the land of Magog, the prince of Rosh, Meshesh and Tubal, and prophesy against him. Now in verse two, some people think that Rosh refers to Russia. It actually doesn't. Rosh is a Hebrew word that refers to chief or most important one. And that's why you have like Rosh Hashanah and things like that. That's what the word refers to. It's never used in the Old Testament to refer to a individual people group. It's like saying the chief. And so if you're gonna read this with the proper understanding, what this is saying is that there, set your face towards Gog and the land of Magog, which is basically, we know, Turkey-ish. And the prince of Rosh, that means the chief prince of, Me, of Meshach and Tubal, and prophesy against them. Okay, so this is basically talking about kings coming from the north, and there will be one chief king, the Rosh guy. It doesn't mean Russia. In fact, we have no etymological tie into Russia in any way in any of the languages that exist. So if you're thinking it's Russia, that's not the point. It may be Russia, but that's not what that verse is saying, right? He may be, he may be part of the alliance from the north. Verse 3, and say, thus says the Lord God, behold, I am against you, O Gog, prince of Rosh, 
Meshesh, and Tubal. I will turn you about and put hooks in your jaws, and I will bring you out and all your army, horses and horsemen, all of them splendidly attired, a great company with a buckler and shield, all of them wielding swords. Persia. Well, that's the east. So you have the guys from the north. Now you have the guys for the east, Persia. Ethiopia, by the way, that's present day Iran, Persia is. Uh, Ethiopia is basically below Egypt, so it's that southern uh, area. Put with them, all of them, with shield and helmet. And then verse 6, Gomer with all its troops, Beth Torgama, and the remote parts of the north with all its troops, many peoples with you. So now we have the, them being mentioned specifically in the north more. And be prepared and prepare yourself, you and your companies that are assembled about you, and be a guard for them. After many days you will be summoned. In the later years you will come into the land that is, and this is important, restored from the sword. So these great nations that are going to come against Israel are going to come when Israel is in the latter times and their land has been restored to them and there's no fighting. There's no swords. No one has swords out. I don't think we can really describe what's happening in Israel like no swords out. They've been fighting every day. They've been there since 1940 and 1940s. Excuse me. Let's continue. Whose inhabitants have been gathered from many nations to the mountains of Israel, which have been a continual waste. So they used to be terrible, but now they're flourishing. But its people were brought out from the nations and they are living securely, all of them. You, I don't think you can describe Israel as living in security right now. You will go up. You will come like a storm. You will be like a cloud covering the land, you and your troops and many peoples with you. Thus says the Lord God, it will come about on that day that thoughts will come into your mind and you will devise an evil plan and you will say, I will go up against the land of the walled, unwalled villages. Another description of what's in Israel. So these other guys are going to say, you know, they don't have any protection. They don't even have walls around their cities anymore. They're living in open peace everywhere. You know, now's our chance. And so this evil thought is going to come into their head. Now, where did that evil thought come from? Perhaps the Antichrist, maybe the spirit of Satan himself, right? I will go against those who are at rest, that live security, securely, all of them living without walls and having no bars or gates. And what's the purpose? To capture, spoil, to seize, plunder, to turn your hand against the waste places which are now inhabited and against the people who are gathered from the nations, who have acquired cattle and goods, who live at the center of the world. And then he continues to go on and talk about it. My point is, if you're trying to say that today is all lined up for the second coming of Christ because the nations of the world are aligned against Israel, that is not happening today. That is not, we don't see the peace and safety in Israel. We don't see unwalled cities. We see them living in fear and terror all the time. If you don't believe me, book a trip to Israel. You'll go through more guards and things than you ever could imagine in your entire life. It's unbelievable how much security they have. And that's why it's so shocking that this war that's taking place with Hamas right now was actually to have some uh, effectiveness because it had to be a very seriously planned war to get through all the security measures that they have out there. So to say that we are set up right now for the second coming of Christ or within seven years, I, I, we're a day closer for sure. But I don't see all these things coming together. Israel is at least decades away from having a safe, 
place where they no longer have any fear and don't have to have the swords out all the time and don't have to have an iron dome over different parts of this, the country. It's, that's a different description than what we're seeing happen there now. So I don't think we're really close, but like I said, you're all, we're a day closer. And then let me take you to another passage in Daniel. This is in Daniel. It's in Daniel chapter 9, verse 24, is the prophecy known as the 70 weeks. And this prophecy is interpreted in multiple different ways, like I said, depending on which of those end-time viewpoints you have. But a very common one and very popular one is known as the pre-trib, predispensational view uh, of this passage. And Daniel's been praying about when we get to go back from captivity into the promised land. And God's answering him by not just telling him that, but telling him how the end of the world ends. And so we pick it up at verse 24. This is God answering the prayer of Daniel. In fact, in verse 23, it says, At the beginning of your supplications, the command was issued, and the angel, I, have come to tell you, for you are highly esteemed, so give heed to the message and gain understanding of the vision. And so here's what he says, verse 24. Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy place. In other words, there's 70 weeks appointed for the end of time. That's what he's basically saying. But everything takes place. And notice, he says, for your, your people, that's Israel, your holy city, that's Jerusalem, to finish the transgression. In other words, for all the sins to be accumulated that were needed to be accumulated, and then they're going to be dealt with. To make an end of sin, that's how they're being dealt with. To make atonement for iniquity, that is the sacrifice of the Messiah to pay the penalty for the sins of the world. Remember, Jesus said, I'm the Lamb of God, take away the sins of the world. To bring in everlasting righteousness, to establish an eternal everlasting kingdom. To seal up vision and prophecy, because you don't need it anymore, you're now in a timeless eternal state. And to anoint the most holy place, and to have God's holy place, which is on earth, in the new heavens and the new earth, where he will dwell amongst men. That's Verse 24, verse 25. So you are to know and discern that from the issuing of a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah, the prince. So there it is. So Daniel is there. He's saying, when do we get to go back into the land? And one of the answers is, well, here's the thing. God is going to send a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem. That decree comes from a, 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 basically Cyrus in ancient times. And it is given, and you, the outcoming of that decree is actually in the book of Nehemiah, where they rebuild the temple. So it is a decree to restore and to rebuild the temple, right? Jerusalem, until Messiah, the prince, will be seven weeks and 62 weeks, okay? So there's going to be a decree to rebuild Jerusalem and rebuild its temple. And this is known as the second temple period. Their second temple gets uh, built, right? And from the day that that decree is given till the day that the Messiah, the Prince, shows up is going to be 69 weeks. These are weeks of years. I'm not going to get all the details. And if you do all the math and you account for leap year and you convert the, the calendar from a 365 degree year calendar to a 300 year day calendar, which is the Jewish versus the Gregorian, and you do all those calculations, it basically turns out to be 27 April 27 AD. Okay, that's when Jesus was crucified. That's what we call Easter. 
Okay, that's the Easter event. That's where it takes you up to. It's, it's staggering. It's unbelievable. All the guys that, divide, <laughs> that, that used to doubt the accuracy of the Bible, getting that, that prophecy, and literally I read one liberal commentator say this. It's an exact quote. Okay, not an exact quote. Essence of the quote. Well, Daniel was a lucky guesser. It's literally what the guy said. It was a lucky guess. He kind of figured out everything and was, you know, kind of smart. And he, he took a guess and it worked out. He was lucky. Okay. With plaza and moat, even in times of distress. So there's going to be hard when this happens. But and that's why you have the whole story of Nehemiah unfolds what's taking place. And we know the exact day so we can do all the calculations. Verse 26. But remember, we have we have 70 weeks. So the 69 weeks have taken place. The Messiah has made atonement for sin and everything is resurrected and moved forward. Then after that 62 weeks, remember, we already include it's seven plus 62 is 69 weeks. That's what that means. After the 69 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off. There's his death and have nothing. And the people of the prince to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary. The prince to come is the Antichrist. Who is the Antichrist? Well, he's going to apparently come from this Roman confederation of nations. So who wiped out the destroyed the city and the sanctuary? Titus did in 70 AD. And so that's what this is actually fulfilled in 70 AD. That's what took place at this point in time. And its end will come with a flood. Even to the end, there will be war. Desolations are determined. The flood is a, is a euphemism. It's a metaphor for lots of wars and problems and troubles. Because when a flood comes, everybody's in trouble. And that's the idea. There's going to be trouble from that day forward in that area. Hello? Hello? And you see what's happening? <laughs> so Israel was in the land there. They had their temple going. It was under the jurisdiction of the Romans. But they were, had a, a pretty lot of freedom going on. And they were living in that land pleasantly. But then they got wiped out by Titus. And then when Titus got, the persecution began to take place and the Jews were dispersed throughout the world again. That happened in the time of the Romans. OK, so let's continue because I'm not, we'll talk about what modern day history has to do with all of this. Right. We'll destroy the city and the sanctuaries and we'll come with the flood. Even to the end, there will be war. Desolations are determined. Verse 27. And then he. The prince to come, who we know as Antichrist, will make a firm covenant with the many for one week. There's our last week, our 70th week. So that's a seven-year period. And he's going to make a firm covenant with the many for one week. Okay? So that's the seven years. So the beginning of the seven-year tribulation starts when someone goes into Jerusalem, makes a deal with the many, that's the rest of the world, and Israel, to reestablish peace in Jerusalem and the ability of the Jews to live, as was described in the other passages, in peace and comfort without walls, without swords, under the protection of this international coalition headed up by who we know is the Antichrist. Of course, he's not showing up and saying, I'm the Antichrist. I want to sign this with you. He's going to actually sound like this unbelievable, brilliant, wise world leader. OK. And he'll somehow be aligned with ancient Rome. Okay. That's the whole point he's saying. And then we'll notice what happens. And the people of the prince to come, what does he say? Then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off, have nothing. Verse 27, then he'll make a firm covenant. This Antichrist makes a firm covenant with the many for one week, but in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and grain offerings. And on the wing of abominations will come one who makes desolate even until a complete destruction, one that is decreed is poured out on the one who makes desolate. In other words, halfway through, he reneges on it, on the covenant. 
and he turns all his wrath against Israel because now we understand who he really is. He's the Antichrist. And he begins to attack them and to persecute them. And this is called the great, great, great tribulation. And you know you're in that if the covenant gets broken. So if you're there for the signing of the covenant, you get, dude, didn't get raptured. <laughs> okay? Because <laughs> that's starting of the tribulation period. You're, you're in it now, pal. And if you're there for the second signing, you're even in more trouble. And that's this seven-year period, the last seven years of human history. This seven-year period ends, that, which is the second three and a half years of that seven-year period. It ends when Jesus comes back because all of the nations of the world are gathered against the Israeli people to finally put an end to this, this rock, this burden, this stone around their neck that is talked about in the other prophecies. They see it as a problem. Israel's a problem. We gotta get rid of them. And we're gonna do it today. And that's when Jesus comes back on a white horse. With, if the rapture, pre-millennial rapture, pre-tribulational rapture is the right viewpoint, all of us Christians will be coming down with Jesus. And he's on the white horse, and we're on little horses, and we have our swords. He has his, and we're going to put an end to this rebellion against God. And then there will be a resurrection. There will be another judgment. And then there will be a final judgment. And then there will be what is known as the millennial or the thousand-year reign of Christ. And that's as clearly as I can give it to you in a short version. And everything I said has multiple nuances from many different scholars. And you could go crazy trying to track them all down. And there's no way I could give all of that in less than four or five days, probably. <laughs> it's just full of stuff. That's how the end times fold out. That's how all this comes together. So answer question number one, are we close to the second coming? I don't see it because I don't see the people living in peace and safety and everybody getting along. I don't see any world leaders giving everybody together. They're being attacked all the time. So are we closer? Absolutely we're closer. And things could happen really fast. But right now, I don't see it, it, it that that clearly. I think that we have a ways to go. Another reason I believe there's a way to go, ways to go is because Jesus said, that be, before he comes again, everybody in the world will have an opportunity to hear the gospel. And we know there are multiple language groups throughout the world that do not have access to the gospel. And so that also is another reason why I don't think we're positioned well. And I know it used to take 20 years to translate the, you know, the gospel into a new language that hasn't been uh, fully developed. Well, now it's probably three or four with what we have with the computer, so it can move a lot faster. And that's what Wycliffe Bible translators and other guys are doing around the world. But still, that has to take a, 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 that has to occur. Uh, but like I said, yeah, we're closer. But oh, and the persecution and the war that you're seeing going on in Jerusalem today is nothing compared to what happened in Nazi Germany to the Jews. There's a thousand Jews were brutally massacred in whatever way you want to define it. It's really horrible and wicked. But there were six million that took place in Nazi Germany. And that was a much worse attack on Israel than what we're seeing taking place today. Even though what's taking place today is completely unacceptable, it's evil, wicked on the highest level, and it needs to be dealt with severely, and I'm glad Israel's doing that. And as a Christian, I can support that. Oh, so that hopefully answers those first few questions. That's how God's plan is for the end. Uh, there are many nuances, and maybe someday I'll do a whole sermon on that on a weekend service. The second part is, how do we get to where we are today? And what's going on over there? Well, I kind of explained to you briefly what took place, how the end times are supposed to unfold, but that goes all the way back to the beginning of time. So in the garden, Adam and Eve sin against God as they take uh, the advice or the counsel or the trickery of the snake known as the Nakash, 
which is a, honestly an antichrist figure. It's a supernatural being that lived in the garden with Adam and Eve. It, he was probably a throne guardian because God had his throne on earth located in the Garden of Eden. And this throne guardian would be someone that the Adam and Eve would talk to normally and not be surprised to talk to, even though they were in a snake form. And they'd probably talked to him before. And this was the day they actually got sucked into following his evil plan and brought death into the world. Adam and Eve then are ex you know, removed from the garden and they're given a promise that uh, the woman would give birth to a child that would basically deal a death blow to the snake, would crush his head, but in the process, the heel would be wounded and others would be wounded. And so it, we see this as the first prediction that God is gonna send a savior, his son. His son would die for our sins, that's the wound, but he would be resurrected, it wouldn't be a death blow, it would be a, uh, a very serious blow, but he would be resurrected from the dead and conquer sin, death, and then the snake himself, the, Nakash himself, and we know that is basically the Easter experience. And so they're looking forward to that, and they give birth to Cain and Abel. Cain kills Abel. God says to Cain that you shouldn't have done that, and put, basically judges him and sends him out. And we have a, basically a history of what's taking place with the, you know, the, the development of the human race until we get to Genesis chapter Five, uh, six. And in Genesis chapter six, we have this weird story that people read, and it basically says that the sons of God cohabitate or actually have sexual relations with the daughters of men. So it's two categories, sons of God, daughters of men, two different groups. One is supernatural. Those are the sons of God. Those are many times referred to as angelic beings. That's Technically not accurate, but I don't want to get into all the details why it's not. The Hebrew word is ben Elohim, means son of God. That's the term. That refers to other supernatural beings in heaven. And you know, when you get pictures of heaven in Ezekiel and Revelation, you, there's more than just angels. There's a lot of interesting creatures there. Well, these are some of those. And the Jews came to call them the watchers because Daniel calls them watchers. And as a result, we'll just say they're watchers. And in Jewish theology, since the te Second Temple period, have referred to them as that. And that'll be the understanding that I'll use for this particular conversation. Those watchers cohabitate and give uh, birth to offspring. The women give birth to offspring that are known as Nephilim. And the Nephilim are big, terrible, brutal warriors, and as a result, you see that there was nothing but sin all over the world, and God says, I'm going to bring a flood, we got to get rid of this stuff. And so, he brings a flood to wipe it all out, and he reboots it. And remember, when he reboots it with Noah, he gives the exact same commission to Noah that he gave to Adam and Eve in the garden, which is to be fruitful and multiply and rule and subdue the earth, and they decide, the descendants of Noah decide not to do that, but to gather in a place known as Babylon, and they build a place, it wasn't known as Babylon, they just built a city there, and they erected a ziggurat, which is a, 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 a temple made to reach to the heavens and basically rule the world and make a great name for themselves instead of a great name for God throughout the world. And so God judges them at the Tower of Babel, and he divides the people. He divides them into separate language groups. These language groups are now cultural and ethnic groups, which end up becoming nations. And in uh, the book of Genesis chapter 10, you have the table of nations. And depending on how you read the table, there's 70 or 72. And the important thing to understand is when you look at that, 
is that that same number of nations are ministered to in the ministry of Jesus when he sends out the 70 or the 72, based on how you take the translation, two by two to spread the gospel. And so there's a connection between the, tra the Tower of Babel and what's taking place in the life of Jesus. And that's another sidetrack I don't want to get off on too much. But part of that is, and Genesis, in, in Exodus 32, the Bible says this, and this is an important passage to take a look at. Excuse me, Deuteronomy 32. And I'll read to you beginning in verse 3. Moses is talking to the nation of Israel, and he says this, For I will proclaim the name of the Lord, that's Yahweh, ascribe greatness to our God, the rock. His work is perfect, for all his ways are justice, a God of faithfulness and without iniquity. Just and upright is he. They have dealt corruptly with him. They are no longer his children because they are blemished, and they are crooked and twisted generation. Do you thus say the Lord, you foolish and senseless people? In other words, do you talk to the Lord like this? Is not he your father who created you, who made you and established you? So Moses is talking to the nation of Israel as they're coming out of Egypt, they're going into the promised land, and he's talking to them about their attitude towards their God. And then he says this in verse 7, Remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations. Ask your father and he will show you, your elders and they will tell you, when the Most High, okay, Yahweh is called the Most High God because there's no other God like him. There's a lot of wannabe gods, and those are supernatural evil agents, but there's only one true God, the Most High God that created everything that is, even other spiritual beings who rebelled against him right? And those are the false gods. And the Most High God gave to the nations their inheritance when he divided mankind. What's that referring? That's referring to the Tower of Babel. Because at the Tower of Babel, God divided the nations according to different languages. And he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God, the Ben Elohim, so the Ben Elohim are these supernatural, powerful creatures, also known as watchers, that are talked about in the book of Daniel. Daniel also calls them princes when he says that the prince of Persia came, to us, to, came against me when I was trying to deliver you this message, but I was helped by the prince out of Greece. So these are territorial spirit beings who have power over different nations and nationalities. That's what he's saying. That's what happened at the Tower of Babel. But notice this. He says, so he fixed the borders and he's fixed these supernatural beings. Their job is to point the people under their leadership back to Yahweh, the most high God. But not all of them were faithful. And that's the story of Psalm 82 that we won't be reading today. But notice the next verse, verse nine, super important. But the Lord's portion is his people, Jacob, his allotted heritage. What he said is, I gave all the other nations under the leadership of the Ben Elohim, the watchers, these supernatural beings. Their job is to point the people under their charge to come back to me as I've dispersed them throughout all the world. And I'm going to go and start my own nation that will directly deal with me. They won't have Ben Elohim over them. And that nation is going to be known as the nation that comes from Abraham, the nation of Israel. Israel. So the very next chapter of the Bible, chapter 11, guess what happens? We have the call of Abraham, through whom all the nations of the world are going to be blessed. And he has a supernatural birth of a son. And that son is Isaac, right? 
He tried it naturally, and that created a big problem. And what was the big problem? Well, God promised to make him a great nation and, and, and bless the world through him, and he's getting to be old. His wife is in her 90s, you know, and things are getting... They lost faith there. They had a, a, a lapse of faith. And so she said, here, take my concubine. In other words, commit adultery, and I'm okay with it. And so they did, and out comes uh, Ishmael. Well, God said, Ishmael is a child of Abraham, and I love Abraham, and I love him, but he doesn't get the promise. I made you a promise, and the promise is going to come through the supernaturally born child, which is going to come through you, and his name will be Abraham Isaac, right? So Ishmael's kicked out, but the Bible says he'll be kind of a wild donkey of a man, and that he'll live in tents and go throughout the desert, and that's what are known as the Arab nations today. And even Muslims, when they trace their roots back to Abraham— I don't know how accurate their root tracing is, but they claim that they're descendants of Ishmael. And so, yeah, they're meeting what you're seeing in Israel, in that part of the world. They live in tents, they're tribal peoples, and they, you know, they're trying to build cities, but historically they've always been tribal wanderers. And those are the descendants of Ishmael. And then the blessed ones are the ones of God's own allotted heritage. Yahweh's allotted heritage is Israel, the son of Isaac has his son Jacob, Jacob wrestles with an angel, changes his name to Israel, means prince with God, has 12 sons, the 12 sons are known as 12 tribes of Israel, they go down into Egypt, they form a nation while they're there, they're persecuted, God delivers them, gives them the 10 commandments and says these are the, the building blocks of a great nation, now I want you to go into the promised land, and they get up to the promised land, they go, uh-oh, there's all kinds of problems here, there's these giant guys, we look like grasshoppers, and guess what, they're the Anakim, they're, re they're related to the Anakim, and the Anakim are related to the Raphaim, and the Raphaim are related to the Nephilim, Nephilim, these monsters that came out in Genesis chapter 6. So God says there's certain nations and groups when you go into this promised land, just work with them. You don't have any problems. But these other ones, and they're all ones who have Anakim, Raphaim in them, you have to destroy them utterly, completely, and totally. And that's why God is justifying it. Why? These are demonically inspired human race mixes that have to be eliminated. That's why there's these monsters, and they're so big and tall and vicious, and, and they, since they are the spawn of the evil one, God's arch enemy, known as the dragon, right, in the Bible, the, we'll just call them the Antichrist, if you, to make it as simple as I can. Their job is to destroy God's people, to destroy Israel. That's who he's at. And so God said, we can't have these guys. And so they go into the promised land, and they have these battles. And you hear all about them, and some of them, they wipe out the whole city and others. But at the end of the life of uh, Caleb and Joshua, Joshua admits in the end of his book that he didn't kill them all. And that they needed to be taken out still. And in the book of Judges, you have the fact that guess what? They're, they're warring back and forth with all these people that are living in the area. And they're, until basically David shows up and he kills a giant. Oh, by the way, the, old, the Greek translation of the Old Testament translates the Nephilim giants. So we know that there's a relationship there. And there's other reasons why I'm not going to get into all that. But the point is, he kills Goliath, which puts an end to the remaining Nephilim in the land so that they could live freely. And he was Goliath of Gath. And where is Gath? Oh, my goodness. It's in the Gaza Strip area. <laughs> it's on the coast. Isn't this an interesting coincidence? 
Uh, he wipes it out. He establishes the kingdom. God is, is blesses him because he is the archetypical ideal king, and he is a picture, a human flawed picture of what the perfect king, Messiah, Jesus, uh, would be one day. And so his kingdom is blessed, and God says he's going to establish his kingdom for eternity and all of that. Then we have what? The nation splits apart because Solomon decides not to be obedient to God, and it goes. It's split between north and south. Eventually, the northern ten tribes end up rebelling against God even further and are taken away into captivity into Assyria and have kind of dissipated from there. No one really knows what happened to them from there. And then a few generations later, even the southern kingdom eventually falls under God's judgment because they turned their back on God, and God disciplines them by sending them out of the promised land. So Judea and Jerusalem are now abandoned and taken over by the Babylonians. So they were taken into captivity in Babylon. While they were there, God did tell them it was going to be a 70-year captivity. And so uh, Daniel is calculating the 70 years are coming up pretty close, so when are we going to get there? And boom, there you have chapter uh, the passage in Daniel I just read to you about how the end times unfold. So in other words, they're going to rebuild the temple. They're going to inhabit the temple. They're going to be there for a while. And they stayed there all the way up basically to the time of the building of Herod's temple and the time of the Romans in the first century when Christ appeared and fulfilled the prophecy that were predicted of him, was crucified, died, went down into Hades, proclaimed his victory over the demonic spirits that were down there, ascended into heaven, is seated at the right hand of God the Father, awaiting his second coming. And that's the time period we're in now. Then the Romans come in, they wipe out Jerusalem, they wipe out the Israel, and they're dispersed into all the different countries of the world known as the Great Di Diaspora. And that lasted until basically uh, in the mid, basically right after World War II, when in the mid 40s, the, the UN or the United Nations, and it wasn't called that in those days, it was called something else, but nonetheless, they gave them the land, uh, and it was under the territorial jurisdiction of uh, the British Empire. And so they kind of initiated to say, hey, we're going to turn this land over to the Jews. They've been persecuted for so many years, and look what the Germans did to them in the Nazi camps, so we're going to give them a place that they can have some peace. And so they were put back in there. And this created conflict because the nations around them didn't want them to have that, little tiny piece of land. It's only 454 miles long and 71 miles wide. This is like going from San Diego to San, San Francisco and going into basically San Bernardino. And that's their whole nation. And you've got Saudi Arabia that's nearly the size of the United States. It's unbelievable how they fight over this little strip. It's because why? Because the people who live there have a demonic spirit insinuated into them that they want. It's not good enough to live alongside with, even though they don't agree with them. They have to exterminate them. And it's said in their actual beliefs. They make it very clear. And Iran is behind this, who funds Hezbollah, who funds the Hamas, who have used this area in Palestine, they call it, which is not really a legitimate name, but I'm not going to get into that either. This Gaza Strip that was a beautiful, flourishing area when it was turned over uh, after the agreements, uh, Oslo Accords with uh, President uh, Clinton. 
They turned that over to give them their own land, and they traded land for peace. That was what the agreement was. They gave them the most choice piece of land on that whole Israeli coast. It's spectacular, and it has subsequently, since that period of time, been dismantled and destroyed piece by piece by the... Uh, by Hamas, who comes in and is a terrorist organization, terrorizes their own people and takes advantage of their own people and has ruined that place that used to be a paradise and now it's just like, it's a hellhole. It is filthy. It's it's just destroyed. And they're going to say, well, the Israelis bombed it and all that. When they gave it to them, it was pristine. And then they started lobbing bombs over the fence all the time. And then you have a war and conflict. And that's what you're seeing taking place today. And in light of what's taking place right now, Israel agreed to give them that land and allowed them to live there in peace and was going to leave them alone. So they put up a fence and said, okay, that's your land. Do your thing. And it wasn't good enough. And so they've been in constant conflict all along. And so nobody in Israel is persecuting the people, the Palestinians. The Palestinians' own leadership is persecuting and taking advantage of them, using them as hu human shields, creating conflict with Israel's, knowing that Israel is strike back. And then they put the the, the missile launchers and the things that they they use to lob missiles into Israel, they put they plant those at schools and in hospitals and in community centers, and they're using their own people as human shields. They are wicked, wicked people in Hamas. So there's no uh, moral equivalency between what the Jews are doing and what the Hamas and the Palestinians are involved in. If if and if I, if I was talking to a person that's Palestinian, a I feel bad for you. B move out of there. Those guys that are governing you have no interest in taking care of you. They are using you to advance their cause. And the more gruesomely you are brut brutalized, the happier they are. Not. Not the more disappointed they are. They have no interest in peace. They are committed to the destruction of Israel. And so something has to be done, and that's what this war is about. And we're going to see how it unfolds. But our job is to, pay, is to pray for the peace of Jerusalem, which means the Israeli people. And we as Christians should be praying for the missionaries who are working with the Palestinians and working with the Jews. All of the people who are disseminating the gospel in that area, we need to be praying for. There are legitimate Palestinians that, who do not want to see Israel wiped out and destroyed, but they don't have the political voice. So for those people, I encourage you, please move out. Get out of there and because there's going to be an ugly conflict. And you should remove yourself so that you're not in the crossfire because your government does not care one iota about you. You are nothing more but a pawn for their political des uh, designs, which is to destroy and eliminate Israel. And you don't want to be on the team that's doing that. You can move out. And that's what I'd recommend. I don't know how hard or easy it is. I'm sure it's much more difficult today than it was like a month ago. But that's what we can say. And for, on the Israeli side, Use, use restraint, but do what you need to do to eliminate the threat. And that's what I would say is would be the biblical counsel from God's word because a unbelievable, horrific wickedness is occurring and has been, and now you're seeing it manifested when they got a shot to actually use and exercise their power and influence when they attacked Israel this last time. Beheading of children, babies, is not acceptable behavior. Using people as human shields is not. This is raw evil from the pit of hell. Whoever's behind it needs to be destroyed. And put, then they can meet their maker and face their judgment. And that's what needs to happen. And if you're a Christian, you should have no problem backing that up. That would be the righteous thing to do here. This isn't just a difference of opinion. This is life or death, cage match, and only one's coming out. Well, then it needs to be the people of God who, who are following Yahweh. 
And we as believers need to stand beside and help whoever we can on either side, but especially give support to the Israelis in terms of this conflict. But there's Christians on both sides of that fence, and we want to pray for them and encourage them and find some way to help them. So those are my final thoughts. I'm sure you'll. I've laid out plenty to disagree with, and, and I hope you have a great week, and I look forward to seeing you, those who are at church seeing you this weekend. God bless.